Well, amen. Good morning, church. I hope you're doing uh, good today. It's good to be back this week and uh, here to preach. And if you don't know me, my name's Billy. I get the privilege of being one of the pastors here. And that's a great honor for me to get to do that. You have your Bibles. I want you to open up to Mark chapter 5. If you've been here, you know we're in a series called Knowing God. Uh, Knowing God is a series we've been in now since January, right? So we've been uh, journeying through the entire Bible, looking at uh, how the Bible has a central message, and that message is uh, Christ, uh, the good news about Christ and who he is and why we need him and how he's coming. And so all the way through July, we worked our way through the Old Testament, uh, and so we've made it all the way through there. And then the past few weeks, we've been looking into uh, the life of Christ. We looked at the birth of Christ uh, the temptation of Christ, and now for, uh, really for, for a lot of the fall, most of the fall, we're going to be looking at the life and ministry of Jesus. And this is very essential, and I'm so excited about uh, this fall and a lot of stuff we have going on, not only here in this community, but all around the world, as Bo uh, was sharing. But one of the things that I believe will just be an incredible uh, thing for you to dive into personally this fall is to join us in what we're doing uh, on Sunday mornings. You know, we have something here we talk about, uh, we call them the big three, but this is all about you engaging in three things to help you grow in your relationship with God. And we as a church kind of do these things together, really in unity. Uh, that, that, that involves coming and participating in the sermons, being a part of listening to who's teaching on Sundays. And then we also have during the week uh, connect groups or small group Bible studies that meet all throughout the community where you kind of uh, dig deeper into the sermon or the passage that we've talked about on Sunday. And then on top of that, we have uh, what we call the 412 reading plan, uh, which is where you personally begin to spend time with God and dig into his word on your own. And so those are three things that we really, really want for you to engage in. And we believe if your heart is right and you're engaging in those three things on a regular basis, there's no way you can't grow in your relationship with God. And so uh, I'm excited about that and excited this morning to teach out of Mark. So let me pray for us real quick, and I hope you got your Bibles open, and uh, we're going to jump right in. So Father, again, we love you. Uh, God, we believe your word is powerful. God, you tell us it's living and active, and we believe that. So God, now as we open up your word, Lord, I pray that you, uh, through the power of your spirit, God would speak to us. God would open our hearts up uh, to hear from you, would open our ears up to hear from you. And uh, God, I pray that we would leave here differently because of an uh, encounter that we've had uh, with you this morning. Father, we love you in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. One of the greatest things about studying the life and ministry of Christ is that you learn two things very simply. And I want to tell you this before I get jump in. Uh, But the first is that nobody in scripture meets Christ or encounters Jesus or comes face to face uh, with Jesus and doesn't change. Right, and so it, there's always life change involved, and that's what I love about this fall. If 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 you have people in your life that you know need to be at church, listen, this is going to be the next few months as we look at the life of Christ. There's never a better time uh, to invite them there, to study the Bible with them, to discuss things about that. And so the second thing is, you know, most people's view of Christ has been shaped by things other than Scripture. You understand that? So, uh, and a lot of people in this room this morning, your view of Jesus and who he is and what his heart is for your life, what his purpose is, how he treats people, how he loves people, what he thinks about you and your life, most of, most of people that we will encounter on a daily basis, their view of Christ and who he is and what he does has not been shaped by scripture. And so as we begin to dig into the life of Christ this fall, I really want us to do a good job gaining clarity around who the person of Christ is, not who we think he is based off of what someone's told us or based off of uh, something we've heard, but what does scripture have to say about the person of Christ? Because I believe as you begin to get to know Christ in scripture, man, it does some incredible things in your life and it'll lead you to love him and trust him and follow him with everything that you have. And so Mark 5 uh, verse 21, we're starting here. 
This is kind of, uh, you know, we, we saw the birth of Christ and then we jumped into the temptation. Uh, after that, Jesus begins to go out on his ministry. He begins healing people. Uh, he begins to save people, forgive people of sins, like do all kind of just incredible things. And what happens is a crowd begins to form around him. And that's where we pick up this morning. Verse 21 says this, when Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, my little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. Verse 24, a large crowd followed, followed and pressed around uh, Christ, and a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet, instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak. The word is actually grabbed his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. And immediately her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. So again, it doesn't take very long reading the life of Christ to begin to see, man, this dude is making things happen. Like he's met two people in these short amount of verses and these two people's lives are about to change forever. We see one guy, Jairus, we see he's a synagogue leader. That means he's kind of a religious leader. He's like a well-to-do guy, would have been very known in the community. He comes up to Jesus and a respected guy in the community falls to his knees. This is unknown, unheard of. But he's in a desperate situation. His little girl, we're going to find out, his 12-year-old daughter, his only daughter, is dying. And he knows the only thing that can help her is Christ. And he falls to his knees in front of him. We're about to see what happens. And then the second person that inserts is this bleeding lady, right? We see that she has been bleeding for 12 years. Uh, doesn't really tell us how she's bleeding or why she's bleeding, most scholars think it has something to do with her menstrual cycle. So if that's the case, then that would mean a whole lot more than just 12 years of bleeding. That would mean she is unclean and kind of isolated away from society. She would have been an outcast. So for her to even be in this crowd of people uh, would be worthy of death because she's uh, labeled unclean because she has been bleeding for 12 years. And so you see uh, Jesus deal with kind of the higher ups in society. And then you also see him deal with this outcast and he is doing some incredible work with them and she gets healed. Verse 30, at once Jesus realized the power that had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and he asked, who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, don't you? His disciples answered. And yet you can ask who touched me. His disciples are like, dude, what are you talking about? We're in this huge crowd. Everybody's touching you. What are you talking about? Somebody touched you. But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at Jesus' feet, trembling with fear, and told him the whole truth. Underline that. Told him the whole truth. He said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Now think about what this would have meant. Man, she's, she's been outcasted. She's unclean. She's socially, she cannot be around anybody, at least for the past 12 years. And she fights her way. She takes this great risk to come through the crowd to just, just grasp onto Jesus's cloak because she had heard uh, the Old Testament says that uh, there's healing even in the cloak of the Messiah, even in the, the jacket. And she grabs onto him. She gets healed. She falls at his knees in front of him and her life would never be the same. She would be healed from her bleeding. She would follow Jesus for the rest of her life. What an incredible picture. And, and then she hears the words from Jesus. It doesn't just stop at a healing. Listen, Jesus is not just healing the lady. He's going even further than that. He engages her in a relationship. Listen, he says, daughter, your faith has healed you. She probably haven't even heard. I don't even know if she has a father. I mean, she definitely for the past 12 years had been isolated from him. The God of the universe looks down at her and his words are, daughter, daughter, daughter. 
Your faith has healed you. Verse 35, while Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, they said. I mean, you can imagine, think about this. Jairus is, is walking with Jesus. In the middle of this crowd, Jesus stops. And Jairus is like, no, Jesus, come on, we gotta get to the house. My daughter's dying. Jesus stops for this bleeding lady. He heals her. And Jairus has just seen this entire scene. You know, his, his spirit is probably filled with, man, I cannot wait until Jesus gets to the house and prays for my daughter and heals her. And then these men come out and they say, Jairus, leave him alone. Your daughter's died. There's, there's no good anymore, but I want you to listen to what Jesus says. Overhearing what they said, Jesus told him, don't be afraid, just believe. Don't be afraid, just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, John, the brother of James. While they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. You can almost picture it. You're walking in with Jesus and these people right now. He went in and he said to them, why all of this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. At this point, you're like, oh no, Jesus, she's not breathing. Like, she's definitely dead. There's no breath coming out. She's kind of turning blue a little bit. She's definitely dead. But what we begin to see is that Jesus thinks about death differently than we do. If we're a Christian in this room, death has lost its power over us. Death is not, I mean, it's still a nuisance in our life, and it's a physical thing that we may have to go through. But ultimately, spiritually, death has no sting on us anymore, right? Jesus sees it as we're just asleep. Because we're alive with him forever, right? We see that. Then he goes on and it says, while the commotion and wailing, the child is not dead, but he's asleep. But then they laughed at him. After he put them out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. Can you imagine? I mean, this is what I love about the encounters with Christ. You can literally put yourself in the scene and almost walk in with Jesus and picture it. He sits down on this bed with this little girl. She's not breathing. She's dead. He sits down. He grabs her by the hand and he says, sweetheart, almost like a father sitting down with his child, with his, with his baby girl, baby girl, it's time to get up. And what does it say she does? Immediately, the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. And at this, they were completely astonished and he gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and he told them to give her something to eat. So what an incredible story, right? You get this, this story about Jairus and we're going to his daughter and she's dead and we're trying to get her healed and on the way, Jesus is like, oh, hold up, let me fix this girl real quick. Oh yeah, matter of fact, let's engage her. She touched my cloak, let's talk to her, let's save her and then we'll go save them. This is Jesus's life. Literally, it, there's, there's no boring read in the Bible, right? When you begin to look in the gospels in the life of Christ, it's not like you go through a day and it's like, oh yeah, man, we just kind of got to go off to church and, you know, kind of hang out. Like the, the Christian life is not a boring life. Like Jesus is a baller. Like he is doing some incredible things throughout his life. And we begin to see, I don't know what your view of Christ is. I don't know who you learn from or what you think about when you think about Christ, but anything that has shaped your view of Jesus other than God's word, you need to get it out of there. Because as a Christian, it's very important that our view of Christ matches the view of Christ in scripture. Because if God is gonna use us in our life and in the lives, in the lives of other people, it's gonna be because we know and proclaim the Jesus of God's word to them. And it's very important that we can do that. And so I wanna show you a very simple way of studying what I call these encounters with Jesus. When you're looking at the life of Christ, the best thing you can do is just ask some very simple questions. Very simple questions. The first one's this. What do we learn about the people in the story? Outside of Jesus, what do we learn about the people in the story, right? We learn a little bit about three people in this story, and we'll talk about those. The second question I want you to ask is what do we learn about Christ? The Bible is the revelation of God. The Gospels are a biography of Christ. There are four men that are writing down who Jesus was and what he did. And it's important as a follower of Christ that we know who he is and we know what he's done. And so we're gonna learn about him 
And then lastly, what do we learn about transformation? Nobody ever meets Christ without being transformed, right? And so what do we learn from that? And let's hold our lives up in light of that and ask, has God transformed us? So the first is, what do we learn about the people? Three significant people. The first is Jairus, right? He tells us about this guy named Jairus. He's a synagogue leader. That way, immediately we know he's Jewish. Immediately we know he's a leader in the community. Immediately we know he probably has money, has a nice house. People know his name. Mark specifically mentions the name of Jairus. He doesn't mention the name of the bleeding lady. Why? Because he wants us to understand. She's a nobody and this dude's kind of a big deal, right? He is a Jewish leader in the community. We know he's probably a, a man of good repute, of good character. He's a good guy. We know he's a good daddy because of what he does because his daughter's dying, right? He's, he's, a, he's a desperate man that loves his only daughter, Luke tells us, so much. He treasures her so much that it drives him, even in the midst of a bunch of Jewish people telling him that Jesus is probably not the Messiah, to fall at his knees and say, Jesus, help me. He was a desperate man and he had heard about Christ and he knew Christ could do something about it. He believed it and he came to him. Secondly, we're introduced to a bleeding lady and she's probably the opposite of Jairus as much as we can see. It says that she had been suffering for 12 years. I want you to think about just just 12 years. That is a long time. Many of us in here have maybe experienced COVID or seen somebody with COVID. You, when you get COVID, they tell you to isolate for 10 to 14 days. If you've been isolated for that long, you start to see, man, that's, that's, that's kind of difficult. Well, maximize that to 12 years, multiply it. This lady had been isolated from community. She was an outcast. She was unclean for 12 years, not around anybody, just thinking about the suffering. God, why? God, why? Oh, this doctor will see me. It says she went to many doctors, but none of the doctors could make her better. They only made her worse. This lady's in a desperate situation, but she had heard about Jesus. She had heard about Jesus. And she believed that he could do something about it. So she was willing to risk everything, even death, to go and see if he could do something about it. And then thirdly, we see kind of a passive character in this story, Jairus' daughter, who, you know, we don't really see until the end and the focus is not really on her. But then when anybody gets resurrected from death to life in a story, you can't miss them, right? So you see this picture, she's a 12-year-old child. So we see Jesus care for uh, the, the, the leader in the community. We see him care for the outcast. And then we see him go for the child. Three very diverse groups of people that Jesus begins to do some incredible work in their lives. We know she's on her deathbed and Jesus says, she's not dead, she's sleeping, watch this. And then he goes after it. So what do all these people have in common? What, what do all these people have in common? When you look at Jairus, you look at the bleeding lady, you look at Jairus's daughter, what do they have in common? I'll tell you what, all of them have something in common. They are all desperate, they all have faith as well, but they're all in a desperate situation. And what you're going to see is that desperation is going to lead them to faith. It's going to push them to Christ. And I think we can learn so much from this. So let me ask you a question. How much do you need God? That's what it means to be desperate. They were desperate for God because God was literally the only person that could help them in their situation. They were desperate. But listen, we live in a country where desperate, desperation for God is not very common. Now you start talking about somebody being desperate for God, there's probably not a lot of people in your mind just like, they're desperate. But in the Bible, what we see, and man, I've seen this all around the world as I preach the gospel in India and other countries all around the world, what you see is that people, when you start talking about Jesus, they're desperate for something greater than the world has given them. It's only in our country and, and, and upper tier countries in our world that you see people don't really need God. They begin to live a life where literally they don't even think about God. And this is what the Bible calls spiritual blindness. I want you to write this down. The greatest spiritual obstacle in your life will most likely be self-sufficiency. The greatest obstacle spiritually in your life 
will probably most likely be in this country self-sufficiency. This is what the Bible calls spiritual blindness. And Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 4 that this is a tactic of our enemy to blind us to the light of the gospel, to our need for God, to our need for the gospel of Christ. And, we, and, and here's the thing. Most people, if you just think about it and ask questions and even look into your own life, don't think they need God. Like they literally do not think that they may say they need God, but then when you begin to examine your life, do you need God? Most people can live their entire lives in such a way that they never even have to think about God. They fill their lives with money and sex and sports and activities and family and events and hobbies and all of these things that literally can busy themselves up so much that they never even have to think about God. They build their own little perfect dream life without God. Yes, it's an illusion, but it's true. And listen, I'm not just talking to you. I feel this in my own life. This is prevalent. This is common in our our country where we live this life where maybe we say we're a Christian or maybe we say we need God, but when you look at our life every day, we don't really need God. We live in such a way that it really doesn't matter. C.S. Lewis, who was a great uh, author, Christian author back in the day, uh, says it this way. He says, we are a people that are far too easily pleased and satisfied with worldly stuff. Like we have this natural tendency in us to just be satisfied with things less than what God offers us. And because we spend our life being satisfied with these small worldly things that really will never satisfy us, it keeps us from the joyous satisfaction that we can find in Christ. But many times, like in the scripture we see today, God uses times of desperation in our lives to break through. This is why I believe Jesus didn't eradicate suffering altogether when he came. I believe when we experience the fallen world the way we are, a lot of times it brings us to places of desperation where we have to think about God. Death makes you think about God. Things not happening that you think should happen make you think about, man, there's gotta be something more. There's no way this is it. God in his grace is allowing us and drawing us in to begin to think, yes, things are not the way they're supposed to be. And there's a God who has a lot to say about that. I want you to just think about this, how God uses desperate need. I mean, you see in the Bible, listen, desperate need is always a positive thing. When desperate need for God is always a good thing, specifically when it drives us to God. Think about it, our salvation. It begins with desperation for God. Like we get saved when we understand that the only thing that can save us is is Christ and his work on the cross. There's nothing I can do. I can't become a good person. I can't go to church enough. I can't climb the ladder high enough. Literally the only thing that can impute righteousness to me that makes me right before God is a work that Christ has done that has nothing to do with anything that I can do. It is a gift of grace that we receive. It starts with becoming desperate to see, I can't do anything to fix my situation. Only God can. But go even further than that. Our ongoing growth as a Christian happens with desperation for more of God. Once we get saved, hey, we're desperate for salvation. But then once we get saved, we're desperate for more of God. We want more of a relationship with God. And as we begin to crave and begin to hunger for God, we begin to grow and grow and become a more mature believer. So desperation for God is a very, very good thing. And we have to see it in this passage. So let me ask you again, are you desperate for God? This is literally the one thing I felt like God just pressed onto my heart as I was reading this passage this week is, are you desperate for God? Are we a church that's characterized by desperation for God, by hunger for God? Or are we building lives where we don't even need God? Are we walking in an illusion where we don't need God? So the question, the deeper question becomes, how do we get to a place where we're desperate for God? Right? How do we get to a place where we hunger for God, where we, where we need God? Well, in Jairus and uh, the bleeding lady's life, it was just life. 
that caused them to be desperate for God. It was life in a fallen world, suffering, sickness, hopelessness, death. This all drove them to a desperation for God. We also see it in the life of David, right? David, who was a man after God's own heart in the Old Testament, uh, it was his belief that his relationship with God was better than life, is what he says in Psalm 63. Listen to this, uh, Psalm 63, one through five, David himself, oh God, you are my God, and earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as, a, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Listen to this. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. Underline that. Because, my stead, because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you for joyful lips. And so on one hand, we have life in a fallen world where we're gonna experience some bad things in this life that are gonna drive us to desperation for God. God, things shouldn't be this way. God, would you walk with me through this difficult situation? We're desperate for more of God. And then on the other hand, we have this, this, this truth, this understanding that a relationship with God, life with God is, is better than life. Even if you take this worldly life from me, the Bible promises that life with God in a relationship with God is better than anything this world has to offer. And if that's the case, make me desperate for God, not desperate for the world. And this is this battle we see David, we see it in the life of Paul. Listen, it, it, Paul's life, it was the surpassing worth of knowing Christ that led him to a place of desperation. Listen to him in Philippians 3, 8 through 11, my favorite passage of the whole Bible. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, underline that, for whose sake I've lost all things, but I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, he says, Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participate in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Listen, desperation for God is a good thing. And my prayer for us as a church is that we would be more desperate and more hungry for God. Listen, we live in a world if you take your eyes, listen, it doesn't take five minutes to walk out of church where you've been focused on the word of God, focused on God, focused on the gospel, focused on the mission of God, focused on living for God to get into a world and forget everything and just begin to get into the hee-haw of life where you never think about God again until you darken the doors of the church. Again, this is not the life of a Christian. I want to teach us to, 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 to pray a prayer. I want you to write this prayer down. And this is my heart. This is, this is my prayer every day and my prayer for you. And I want it to be your prayer. And don't pray it unless you mean it. Lord, do whatever it takes to keep me desperate for you. Lord, do whatever it takes to keep me desperate for you. Listen, desperation for God is not something you can just conjure up on your own. Hunger for God is something God produces in you, but we can thank you're asking for it. And I pray today would be a day where you'd say, God, that's what I want. God, like these people where you did something awesome in their life. I want you to do that in my life. I want to be hungry for you. God, I want to be desperate for you. Listen, this is what the worship and prayer night's all about. It's about coming into a room with other Christians, lifting up the name of Christ, bringing our needs, praying, asking God to do something in our lives, in our community, in our world, in our church for him. The second question I want you to ask is, what do we learn about Christ? What do we learn about Christ? Listen, do not let anyone else be the primary source of your view of Jesus, including myself. Do not let anybody else in your life be the primary source of your view of Christ. That's what God has given you his word for. Listen, thousands of men laid their life down to get this Bible to you in a language where you could understand it. This is God's word. This is the revelation of who God is. 
This thing has everything to say about who God is in your life. There's thousands of people in this world that want to tell you what they think about Christ. It's not what this is about. You read this Bible. You study the life of Christ as we are as a church this time. And you begin to allow it to shape your view of Jesus. This passage teaches us a few things about Christ. The first thing you see very clearly is that he is who he says he is. Jesus came into this world making a very bold claim, and that bold claim was that he is God. He is God in the flesh. And when I say he did everything and backed up everything he said, I mean with flying colors. Like literally it says Jesus marveled at people that didn't believe in him. He marveled because it's like the evidence is right before you. As you read the life of Christ, he is who he says he is. This is what I love about the gospels. The man is literally like Steph Curry from the three-point line. I mean, he doesn't miss. He's putting on a complete show. He's forgiving people's sins. He's healing paralytics. He's casting out demons. He's calming storms. He's raising dead people. Like literally, he's, this is a day in the life of Christ. Every day, Mark is so clear about it. Hey, this day, Jesus healed this, cast out this demon, uh, forgave this person's sins. Oh, calm the storms on the way over here. Oh, talk to this lady, got her up. She was blind. Now she sees. I mean, literally every day, I mean, Mark makes it so clear. This is who Jesus is. He's clearly demonstrating his power and his authority over everything. His authority over sin, his authority over sickness, his authority over wind and rain, his authority over demons, his authority over death. All of these things are so clear as you begin to read about the life of Christ. And listen, it's everything the Old Testament has told us that he was gonna be. Isaiah prophesied this. That when the Messiah came, this is what he would be. This, he, would, he would say this. And literally in Luke 4, 18, Jesus stood up, opened the scroll to Isaiah, and he said, the spirit of the Lord is on me because God has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. The core question when you begin to read the gospels is this question, what are you gonna do with Jesus? What are you gonna do with him? Because listen, when you read the Bible, you see very clearly, he's not just a good person. He's not just a good teacher. He's not just another prophet. He is God and he's claiming to be God. And then he's backing it up. And he's claiming that whether you believe in him and trust in him and follow him, or whether you don't and you begin to try to kill him and work against him, there are major implications for those decisions. And so the one thing we cannot do with the person of Jesus is be complacent and indifferent towards him. We either follow him with everything we got and lay our lives down for him, or we don't. And we handle the consequences for that as he comes. But Jesus is who he says he is, and it is completely clear in the scriptures. Second thing we see is that he's characterized by compassion. Listen, Jesus's message was as clearly as I just was offensive. Like it is an offensive message. But when he preached his message, it came with extreme compassion. Like he was characterized by compassion. And this is what gets to the hearts of men and women. His compassion is all over this story. His empathy and love for people is just incredible. I mean, listen to his words. They're, they're so tender. Listen to, uh, just look at his actions and how loving he was. I'll read it to you again in Jairus's situation. Again, you got to put yourself in the shoes of Jairus. Your daughter is on her deathbed. You, you, you've exhausted all the options. There's nothing left. My little daughter is dying, he said. So Jesus, please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. Can't you just see him like crying, begging Jesus as he waited for the words that Jesus would say? And what does Mark say? So Jesus went with him. The God of the universe, he didn't just say, hey, Jairus, I got you. She, she's alive, just go on back. What did he say? He engaged him. He said, no, hey, I'll go with you. Let's do this together. The God of the universe hey, I love you, let's do this together. Let me help you bear this burden. He could have been distant, 
but he wasn't. He was proximity, he was close. He wanted to be a part of Jairus's life. The bleeding lady, think about, she's 12 years, she's been bleeding and she finally touches his robe and she's healed. And Jesus looks down at her, this isolated outcast that's been isolated for 12 years. Everybody's scared to death of her because she's unclean and says, daughter, daughter. Can you imagine the words as they came out of Jesus's mouth in her life? Daughter, like loved one, I love you. I wanna be close to you, daughter. Your faith has made you, has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. Think about Jairus's daughter. I mean, she don't know anything. She's 12 years old. She's laying on the bed. All she knows is that they tell her she's about to die. And they tell her about this guy, Jesus, that if they can get him here, he can save her life and she can live longer. She wakes up from a tired nap to a man sitting on her, her bed and he grabs her by the hand. He says, listen, baby, I'm Jesus. And it's time for you to get up. And she stands up and immediately she's, she's better. Listen, these people meet Christ and their, their whole lives change. Listen, they will never be the same. Jesus spoke with so much compassion. Literally, I want you to write this down. Jesus always moves towards us in our need and suffering and not away from us. He always moved towards us in our suffering and not away from us. Read the gospels. Jesus is literally the thing that characterizes his life is that he meets people exactly where they are. And he doesn't meet them in anger. He meets them with compassion and he gets straight to their heart. And listen, it doesn't matter who they are. It doesn't matter where they come from, doesn't matter what color they are, doesn't matter who their mom and daddy are, doesn't matter what they've done and who they did it with. Jesus would go to the fishing docks, that's where he went and got Peter. He'd go to a sycamore tree and get a tax collector, that's where he got Zacchaeus. He'd go to a well in the middle of the day and get a prostitute, that's where he got the woman at the well. He'd go to a stoning of a lady that got caught in adultery and he'd interrupt the stoning and say, who, who are y'all to cast this stone? Come with me and he'd save her there. He didn't care. He met people exactly where they are. And this is what I love about our Christ. And listen to me, there's something that every person in this room needs to know about Jesus. And it's personal. And it's that your sin doesn't scare him. Your past doesn't scare Jesus. Like your reputation, good and bad, who you are doesn't scare Jesus. Your situation, no matter how desperate it is, it doesn't scare Jesus, no matter how good or bad it is. He loves you. He's a good father. Listen, he's seeking and saving lost people of which you are one of. And he meets you exactly where you are. And today I am believing that there are people in this room that God has sent here, I don't care how you got here, because he wants to meet you exactly where you are. Listen, he specializes in lost causes. Everybody in your life may tell you you're a failure right now. You've never been good at anything. You're done. You'll never make out anything in your life. And Jesus would say, with me, you can He specializes in lost causes. He can transform the most hopeless situation and today I believe he wants to do it in the life of people in here. And today I believe he wants to use some people in here to take the message to people outside the four walls of this church and speak about the Jesus of the Bible and not just a Jesus that you think, oh yeah, maybe he could help this person. No, 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 maybe about it. It don't matter what situation you're dealing with outside the four walls of this church and who it is. If Jesus is in the picture, he can heal it. He can help it. And some of y'all need to hear that because you've given up on somebody. You've given up on somebody because you think they're too far from God. They've hurt you too bad or they've done this or they've done that. Listen, it may not mean that you need to uh, get back close to them, but it does mean you need to pray with them and you need to begin to share Christ with them and tell them that Christ can do what they can't do. And that's put their life back together and begin to show them what they're truly created to do, which is walk in a relationship with him. Listen, that's who we are. That's who Christ is. That's the purpose of the church. This is the message that we have. This is the person that we proclaim. What a message. What an invitation. And then lastly, we see not only is he who he says he is, not only is he compassionate towards us, but three, he wants a relationship. He wants a relationship. I love this. It's probably my favorite part of the whole entire story. He wants a relationship. He could have just healed Jairus' daughter from a distance, but that's not what he did. What did he do? He engaged her. 
Listen, he, he literally stepped into Jairus's life and walked with him all the way to his home and began to build a relationship with him. He could have just let the bleeding lady go after she touched him and nobody knew. What does he do? He stops everything. Hey, who touched me? Everybody's like, dude, you're crazy. You're in a crowd. What do you mean you touched? No, somebody touched me. Where is it? And then here she comes. And what does he do? Does he just let her fall at her feet? No, he engages her in a relationship and in conversation. You see, Jesus wasn't interested in just being a miracle worker. Though he did many miracles and healed so many people. He's interested in being a savior and he's calling people into a relationship with him. Listen, there's so many people that want to come to Jesus and just get the healing. But when you come to Jesus for the healing, you leave with way more than the healing. You leave with the greatest gift, which is access to him, relationship with him. Healing is temporary. Both of these people would eventually go on to die. But the one thing that would never change is their eternal relationship with God. Jesus is interested in eternity with people. He's interested in saving people and whatever he has to do to do it, he'll do it. So let me ask you a question. Do you have a relationship with Jesus? Listen, I'm not asking, do you go to church? I'm not asking, is Jesus your fire insurance? I'm not asking, is Jesus your genie in a bottle that you just shake up and try to get him out when you need him to do something? I'm asking, do you have a relationship with Christ? That's what he came for. He wants to know you. He wants to walk with you. It's the greatest gift of all is access to Christ. What an incredible gift we get in a relationship with Jesus. I love the story right before that. I don't have time to read it, but... In Mark chapter five, right before this, there's a demon-possessed guy. And I, this isn't just any demon-possessed guy. This dude's named Legion. This is like a ton of demons, like crazy than you ever seen. He lives in a, a graveyard. He's like chained up to the grave, blah, blah, all this stuff. Jesus comes, casts the demons out of him, throws them into a pig. They run off and kill themselves. And then he, he starts dealing with this guy, saves the guy, heals the guy, casts the demons out of him. And then he gets ready to go over on the boat to heal these other two people we just read about. And this dude won't leave. He's literally like, Jesus, I'm coming with you. Where, where are we going? Oh, on the boat? All right, I'm in here. I'm good. I'm good. Where are we going? Oh, over here? Oh, I, I've been, I, nah, I'm going with you. Wherever you're going, I'm going. And Jesus literally has to tell the man, hey, dude, you can't come with me. Like, go tell your family what I've done for you and what I can do for them. Go, go live the mission. Go tell them about who I am and what I've done. But this is what happens when we encounter Christ. When we see him for who he is and when we experience what he can do in our lives, we just want to be with him. This is the greatest gift we get is him, a relationship with him. If you don't want to be with Christ, then you have not experienced Christ, period, period. And then lastly, the question is, what do we learn about transformation? I think this is incredible because we need to understand the transformation that happens. And I think he gives us some very clear things in here that can help us in some incredible ways. What do we learn about transformation? Well, he gives us some prerequisites before these people were transformed. And then he gives us some evidence after they were transformed, right? And, and I'm, I'm very objective when I read the Bible, right? Because we live in a very subjective world. Everybody's a Christian where we live, but it's like, okay, well, if you're a Christian, shouldn't you Shouldn't your life look similar to the way Christians looked in the Bible? Yeah, absolutely, they should. And so we need to be able to examine the scriptures and test our lives. The Bible says, test our faith. Do, are we in the faith? And so this story gives us two prerequisites of transformation. You should write them down. Desperate need and faith. Desperate need and faith. Those are the two things, and they go hand in hand. They go hand in hand. Before God can do a work in our life, those two things have to be present. We gotta need him. We have to hear the gospel. The good news of the gospel is that you need God. And not just that you need him, but that he came and made a way. And how do we access this gospel, this good news of what Christ has done? It's through faith. It's through faith. Faith is, faith is, is beginning to, to, faith is actionable trust. It's, it's trusting in something so much that it changes the way you act. You get that? This is the life of a Christian. The Christian life is not about what you see. 
because nobody in here has ever seen God. That'd be nice if we could, but we don't. But God says, blessed is the one that doesn't see me and believes. The Christian life is not about feelings because sometimes you're not gonna feel like God is real or feel like God is with you. But faith is a life built on the person of Christ, the promises of Christ, and the teachings of Christ. So it's, it's when my faith meets my feelings that contradict what scripture believes, I'm going with faith in the promises of God and not what I feel and not even what I see. Some of you say, Billy, you don't know, man. Like you, you don't understand my situation. You don't know what I'm going through. You don't know what I've done. I don't feel like God loves me. I don't care. The Bible is clear. For God so loved the world, you're part of the world, that he gave his one and only son, that he killed, he murdered. He put his only son on the cross for you and your condemnation so that you could receive eternal life. It's clear. No matter how you feel, no matter what you think, Jesus is who he says he is and that's what he said. And so today, the opportunity's before you. Will you believe? Listen, we ask people a question when they get in the baptism. First question is this. Do you believe that Jesus has done everything necessary to save you? Do you believe? Not based off of anything you can do, not how you feel, not a work that you've done, not a prayer that you've prayed, but do you believe that when Jesus was on that cross, that he was on that cross with your sin and he took your place and if you believe that, and you say yes, you say, because of that, I wanna follow him with everything I have. You are saved. You are saved. And today I believe there's people in this room that don't. You're still trying to do it on your own. And listen to me, you are a person of desperate need because you'll never be able to do it. And you'll stand before God and he will send you to hell because you're trying to save yourself and it's not possible. But if you trust in Christ and you put your faith in him, you rest the weight of your life on him, you'll stand before him. Today, you'll get access to him. Today, he'll fill you with your Holy Spirit. Today, he'll change your life today. And that's what we see happen in this story. The second thing we see are evidences when somebody has changed. And this is just as important as the prerequisites. How do I know God? How do I know, Billy, if, 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 if the Spirit has transformed my life? Well, in this passage, we see this lady and as God heals her, he, he saves her. And we begin to see three things come out in her life. Humility, honesty, and there's peace and freedom. I think it's kind of the same, the same word there. You could probably preach them as four, but you see this, this, this humility. Immediately her response to Jesus after he has healed her is fall to her knees. It's God, you are God and I am not. And that is very clear in this situation. And then it says she told the whole truth. It says she, she got honest. And for some of us in the room, that's the clearest indicator that we've not been saved and God hadn't transformed our life. Is we still got secrets. We live a life of secrets. But listen to me, the Christian life is free of secrets. Because the gospel itself says that God knows you fully. He sees you for everything that you are. And in your good and in your bad and your ugly, he loves you and he accepts you just as you are. That's the good news of the gospel. God's not looking for you to clean up or dress yourself up or present yourself better than you are when you come to him. He's asking you to come as you are and allow him to do that for you. And then once he begins to transform your life, guess what you can be honest about? Man, I was, this is who I was, but this ain't who I am anymore. Because there's nothing that you can do, you have done or will do, that has not been covered by Jesus' blood on the cross. Nothing. As a Christian, everything we've done, our past, all of our secrets, the blood of Christ begins to cover. And we can be honest. We're free to be honest. 
And then lastly, it says freedom and peace. He says, go in freedom, go in peace because you've been freed from your suffering. How many of us can say our lives are characterized by freedom and by peace? This is what the gospel does is it gives us peace and freedom, real peace, lasting fulfillment and eternal purpose. I I love this. this. The gospel offers peace with God. It offers freedom from suffering and death. We no longer have to worry about suffering and death and it offers a new purpose in life. We no longer have to get up and not know why we're here. So right where you are, I just want you to bow your head. I want you to think about those three terms. Just think about them. Peace, fulfillment, and purpose. Are those evidences true in your life? Honesty, humility. Are these things evident in your life? Listen, when we meet Christ, those things begin to flow out of us as naturally as sin did before we were a Christian. And here's the offer today. If you don't have that, God says, I'll transform your life today. You're looking for peace. You're looking for freedom. You're looking for fulfillment. Today, you can find it but you can only find it in one place. And it's the foot of the cross. It's humbling yourself before Christ and saying, God, I need you to do for me what I can't do for myself. God, would you do a work in me that only you can do? If you're in this room today and you say, Billy, that's me. I know it. Based on this, these prerequisites and based on these evidences, God has not transformed my life, but today I want him to. And I'm ready. Would you just lift your hand right where you are? You lift your hand, say, Billy, that's me, amen. Say me, give you a second. You're in here, you'd say, that's me. I wanna pray for you, anybody else? You lift your hand. So Father, that's our prayer today. God, for the people that have raised their hands this morning, Lord, I pray that right now, God, you would do what only you can do. And God, that's make them a new person. God, would you transform their life, not based off of anything they've done, but based simply on the faith that they've just placed in you. And God, for the rest of us in this room this morning, Lord, my prayer is that this would be the message. This would be the Christ that we would take out these four walls. God, that you would create a desperation in us for you. God, that we would be a church that hungers for you. God, not a church that leaves this, this service this morning and just returns to the world no different than when we came in. God, would you change us? God, would you focus us in on who you are? And God, would you transform us to be more like you. Lord, we love you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Would you stand and sing with us?